All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have, most of us have not met yet, so oh, where do I stand so I don't make the speaker go crazy? I'll stand right here. Uh, most of us haven't met yet, and uh, my name is Rob Ham, and uh, the last name is spelled H-A-M. And as I was growing up, people would ask me, how do you, how do you spell your last name? I said, just like, you know, the meat, right? Rob Ham, that's no baloney. I'm the lead pastor of Keystone Heights Presbyterian Church. Uh, my son, Calvin, everybody wave at him. Stand, stand up, Calvin. Everybody's wave at everybody. There he is. There's Calvin. Came all the way from Florida, and uh, we are the sending church uh, for Aspen Grove, the, uh, the second greatest church on the planet, just so you know. My church is watching right now on the live stream, so that's equal, equal. Hey, um, some of, most of you don't know this, but when I first met uh, Howard and uh, Daryl, I met Howard first, and I was um, out on my front lawn, and I was, I'd just gotten every Floridian's dream, which was this device. This is a snapper, the Forrest Gump snapper. Do you remember this? So I'm out on the snapper and I'm riding around. I have my AirPods in and I get a phone call from someone I never interacted with. It was Howard. And Howard essentially says, hey, um, Rob Ham." I said, yeah, that's me. I'm on the snapper. He says, I want to change the world for Jesus. And I was like, wow, that's great. Let's do it. And he says, I'm going to change the world with a guy named Daryl, which we'll get to in a second. But we're going to do it in the best city on the planet. He said, it's the best people. And all God's people said, yeah, best people and the best weather. Um, which was, by the way, this is this morning in Indian land. Um, I, he lied about the second one. And I said, wow, you're going to change the world with the gospel. That's amazing. Who are you going to do it with? Who's your partner? And he said, Daryl Timberlake. And I said, the lead singer of NSYNC? And he said, no, no, different Timberlake. I'm not so sure that could be, uh, that could be him. All right, we're going to be, in, I just want to introduce myself. First Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, we're going to be in verses 10 through 23 this morning. If you are able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God this morning? And uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning of verse 10, all the way down to verse 23. And I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. The Bible says, According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know, Paul writes, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God. We've just read from 
the greatest book that's ever been created in the history of the cosmos. It is nothing less than the word of the living God. It's the same word that spoke the cosmos into existence. It's the same word that parted the seas in the days of Moses. It's the same word that made the sun literally stand still in the days of Joshua. It's the same word that brought Jesus from the dead, and it's the same word that'll change our lives. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into this word together. Uh, Father in heaven, Thank you for this morning, for the ability to gather together at, uh, at Aspen Grove Church to proclaim your name, uh, to uh, bring glory uh, to your, um, your being, your essence, your, your holiness, your gloriness. Uh, God, you are bigger and better and brighter than anything that we could ever imagine. You are the one who was, you are the one who is, you are the one who evermore will be. Um, you are the Alpha and the Omega. Your word tells us you're the beginning and the end. Um, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you've done in our lives. Um, thank you for bringing us here in this moment. None of us are sitting in this space on accident. Um, in fact, Lord, before the foundations of the world, your word tells us that you had planned and decreed that we'd be sitting in this space, in the chair that we are in, sitting next to the people that we are in, hearing these words right now because you have something to say to us. Holy Spirit, you have something to speak into our lives. So Lord, I pray for those who are hurting this morning that they would find healing, for those who are feeling broken this morning that you would bind their wounds. Lord, for those who are feeling lost that you would give them direction and focus and clarity and purpose. Uh, and Lord, that uh, we would get out of the way and simply encounter you this morning as we sit at your feet hearing from the scriptures. We pray these things in your name and all God's people at Aspen Grove said, Amen. You may be seated. Um, there is a story that is told about a family that came from New York City, and together as a family, they decided to move from the city down to the country. Um, they wanted to kind of leave their native land, leave their home state, and they wanted to purchase a ranch. They wanted to purchase a really big farm. They wanted to have cattle. They wanted to be cattle ranchers, and they wanted to be career farmers. And so they leave New York City and uh, they go all the way to the west in order to open up this brand new ranch. And a few months goes by and a group of friends decides to visit um, this, uh, this family and see the new ranch. And my mic's going to fall off my head. See the new ranch. And uh, when they show up, um, they ask their friends, hey, does this ranch have a name? And the friend turns to him and he says, yeah. And I put it up on the displays. He says, well, to be honest, I wanted to name, I wanted to name the ranch the Bar J." But my wife, she favored the name Susie Q. And one of our sons, he liked the name The Flying W. And our other son really wants to name it the, what, the Lazy Y. And so we decided to call it the Bar J Susie Q Flying W Lazy Y Family Ranch. Right? They hear this. The friends are like, wow, that's fascinating. Show us the ranch. They go outside. They look all around. They said, hey, I just have one question. Where's all the cows? Where's all the cattle? The rancher replies. He says, unfortunately... None of them survived the branding. Um, yeah, yeah, there it is. Unfortunately, none of them survived the branding. Unfortunately, here's where we're going today, everyone. The truth of the matter is that some churches in our world are very much like that very confused family of would-be ranchers, aren't they? Because very unwisely and very foolishly, they, they try or they attempt to incorporate all these different human ideas and plans and strategies 
from various groups of people or cliques within the church, and so they focus all their time and all their energy and all their resources on far too many initiatives and far too many programs and far too many events and ministry endeavors. So at the very end of the day, just like those poor cows, nobody in the church survives all the what? Survives the, the branding. So at the very end of the day, they, they feel like they failed. They feel unsuccessful because they've been doing it on their own, their own endeavors, their own plans. Not to mention the fact that as the Christian statistician Ed Stetzer uh, has pointed out, um, after the 2020 pandemic, um, the number of regular churchgoers in the United States has actually decreased from 34% of regular attenders down to 26% of the population in the United States attending church. As the Christian sociologist Wendy Wang has pointed out, this has only accelerated a decline in church attendance here in the West that's actually been going on for about two decades. And so in light of all this, and I hope your Bibles are open, as we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the question is simply going to be this. According to the Word of God, how do we here at Aspen Grove build the church? Anybody want to know that? One of us? Two of us? It's okay. You can say yes. Ready? One, two, three. Yes. If we, do, we want to build, do we want to see our, a church established or reestablished in terms of being a lasting, vibrant ministry that makes a difference for all of eternity? Anybody ready for that? If so, look with me in your Bibles again at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, um, where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is actually going to share with us in these verses how he himself actually built or fortified a church in a culture or a secular civilization back in first century Corinth that was very much like our culture right now today. So look at me at verse 10. Paul writes these vitally important words when he says that according to the grace of God given me, like a skilled, read it with me, master builder, he says, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is, and he gives us the answer, it is Jesus Christ. And so right away, if you're taking notes, and I see people getting their pens out, so I'm really happy about that. That gets a pastor excited. As you're taking notes, if you and I, as the people of God, want to build a strong, vibrant, lasting ministry in this church in our own day, then first and foremost, here's your first little point, table of contents for our time together. We need to begin Aspen Grove, with the right, what? The right foundation. We need to begin with the right foundation by starting everything that you do from this moment on with Jesus Christ. By establishing this church squarely upon the Lord our God and not on things like personalities and not on things like programs or policies. See, what I want us to notice in verse 10, if you notice there, glance down there with me, is I want you to see first and foremost how Paul specifically chose to describe himself or delineate himself when it came to his unique function or his, his role in the planting of this first century church. Because in verse 10, Paul describes himself as a master what? He's a master builder, kind of like my son, our oldest, Calvin, who you uh, likes to build with what? What kind of tools? Legos, right? Master builder. Even more literally in the Greek. And we're going to learn a Greek word today. And so we're just going to everybody take a deep breath in and out. <sighs> Ready? Stretch a little bit. We're going to say it. I'll say it. You say it back. It's the word architectone. Let's try it together. Ready? It's the word architectone, which of course is where we get our English word for 
architect, right? So what Paul is really saying here is that as a master architectone or as a master architect, he chose to lay the only foundation that would last in the development of the church in the first century, which was a singular focus on who? On Jesus. In fact, look at verse two. Paul goes on to say, for I decided to know how many things among you except Jesus. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and his, him crucified. And the reason for that is because as every architect knows, and I'm not an architect, but my brother-in-law, Brandon, if he's watching, he is. Every architect knows that the foundation of something or the substructure of a building is absolutely crucial since the foundation of a thing actually determines the size or the shape or the strength of the structure itself. You tracking with me so far? Okay, three of us. I'm in, I'm in. Did you know that if you are ever visiting um, Elaine's hometown, what, what city you were in? San Francisco. If you're ever visiting San Francisco, do you know the absolute safest place to be in that city, by the way? She, she, she just wants to, play, she wants to play coy, but she knows. The safest place to be in that city is actually right in the very center of the Golden Gate Bridge. Did you know that? Safest place to be in New York, in, in, uh, in San Francisco. And that's because experts claim that the Golden Gate Bridge um, can easily withstand an earthquake, which I'm from Southern California originally, that's our worst nightmare, an earthquake of a 10.0 on the Richter scale. Everybody say that's big. It can handle 10.0. Now that's due, due to its unique construction. The, the Golden Gate Bridge is extremely flexible, but then number two, when it comes to that bridge, absolutely every piece of metal, every piece of concrete, every piece of macadam and pavement, all of it, um, goes up to these huge girders that go down to these two huge piers in, that go down into the ground into solid bedrock, okay? Which means that everything connects in the Golden Gate Bridge, at least humanly speaking, to an unmovable foundation that cannot fail even when the, the, the floor shifts, even when the earthquakes strike, even when trouble comes. Have you ever had trouble come in your life? Have you ever had the, the, the ground of your life start to shift? You will if you haven't. Some have said that you're either in a moment of suffering right now or you just came out of a moment of suffering or you're about to go into a moment of suffering. You need to build your life on the correct foundation. And so as you and I, as the people of God, if we want to build strong, lasting, vibrant ministries for the kingdom of God, then we have to build on the bedrock of Jesus Christ, which means that this church, Aspen Grove, at this place, Jesus needs to be the foundation and the focus of absolutely every single thing that we do. Now, over the years, the methods may change, but at the same time, the message will always stay the same. Amen? The methods may change. The message always stays the, the same because at this church, and I can speak on behalf of Howard here, we preach Jesus and him crucified and risen from the grave. Amen? In 1912, none of you were there. <laughs> in 1912, a medical missionary uh, by the name of Dr. William Leslie went to live and minister amongst a group of, of tribal people in the remote center of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And after 17 years on the mission field, he returned to the United States just a discouraged man. He was on the mission field for 17 years, and he just felt like he didn't accomplish anything. 
He was trying to tell people about Jesus. He was trying to promote literacy. He was trying to tell people about the good news of the gospel. He was trying and trying and trying, and, and he felt like he didn't accomplish a thing. 17 years, he feels like he wasted 17 years of his life in his ministry. He comes back to the United States, and nine years later, he passes away. Nine years later, he goes to be with Jesus. And yet a few years later, in 2010, there was a team that was led by a man named Tom, uh, Ed, Eric Ramsey with Tom Cox World Ministry, who made this surprising discovery. They went, they went back to that area where Dr. Leslie had preached and taught and ministered. And what they started to find was this network, surprisingly enough to them, of reproducing churches all over the area. They saw churches sprouting up. They saw um, uh, people, you know, he had just exposed people to the name of Jesus and to the gospel. And all of a sudden, they saw church plant after church plant after church plant after church plant all over the Congo. Here's what Ramsey reports. He says, and I put this up on the displays, when we got in there, we found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. Each village had its own gospel choir, although they wouldn't call it that. They wrote their own songs. They'd have hymn sings from village the village. In fact, as they went into this place where this missionary had said he accomplished nothing over the course of 17 years, they found that in each of the eight villages that they visited, there were churches in each of the villages. 34 churches were multiplying from end to end in this jungle. On top of that, they found a thousand-seat concrete amphitheater that was used outside as a cathedral um, that was used in the 1980s uh, where people would go and worship the Lord outside. Um, for 17 years, Dr. Leslie thought that he accomplished nothing. For 17 years, all he did was he fought tropical illness and charging buffaloes and armies of ants and leopard-infested jungles to bring the gospel to the remotest parts of the world. And he had this feeling like he failed. And yet in the final analysis, what we find is that if you are building a ministry on Jesus Christ, the Jesus that I worship and that you worship, guess what he never does? He never fails. The world changes, politics changes, science changes, everything changes, we change. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, you've changed, right? Our, our, hair is a little, our hair is a little less. Our weight's a little different. Like the wrinkles have started. Like we're all different, right? We're all changing. But Jesus says, I'm the same yesterday and today and forever. See, that is the power of the gospel that Jesus brings to his church. If we build our church on Jesus Christ, then even the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it, is what Jesus says, right? Much less illness or charging buffaloes or armies of ants or roaming leopards. Nothing can crush the movement of Jesus. And so if you want this church to build a lasting and a vibrant legacy, the number one, we need to, let's see if we remember, we need to begin with the right foundation. Secondly, as we're going to see next in the text, we need to also build a quality structure. We need to build a quality structure on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ. Because if you think about it, it doesn't do us any good to put a shack on top of a foundation that is equipped to handle a skyscraper, right? You don't want to put a shack on top of something that can handle something much greater. And so if you and I, as the people of God, want this, Aspen Grove Church, to last, then we must, as Paul's going to say down in verse 12, if you get there with me, we need to add to the foundation, who is Jesus, we need to add to the foundation of Jesus, fully devoted followers of Christ, or to put it another way, we need to 
add to the foundation of this church first-rate disciples of Christ. Look at verse 2. Now, if anyone builds, what's it say? If anyone builds, this is verse 12, actually. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, then each one's what is going to become manifest? Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In other words, there's nothing better than fire to test the quality of the materials that were used to build the structure, right? Fire is how you test it. Meaning that things like wood, hay, straw, what do they start to do quickly when the fire comes? They start to to burn, but gold, silver, and jewels, what do they do? They, They last, they survive. And so the point that Paul's actually trying to make here is that if we build the church with shallow Christians, then in the final analysis, that kind of church isn't going to last. But if we build the church with fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, then in the final analysis, that kind of church will be able to last as long as Jesus gives us life on this earth, right? That's exactly what's been happening, for instance, in the Christian church in places like Ukraine. Um, late February of 2022, right after the Russian forces began to invade the Deputy General Secretary of Ukraine's Bible Society, um, he started to explain how the gospel started to take root in Ukraine more than ever before, like it always does when persecution and pressure comes upon the church. In fact, he said this, he said, in our churches, whether it's Orthodox, Protestant or evangelical congregations, there are more new what in their churches? There are more new people. This is in the, in the throes of war. He says not only on Sundays or Saturdays, but also during the week, on evenings when we have a Bible study, new people are coming. Um, they want to pray. They want to hear something that brings what, church? They want to hear something that brings them hope and comfort, and they want to hear the gospel. Since then, more than 4 million Ukrainians have fled the country. Another 7 million Ukrainians have been internally displaced. And yet many believers have actually chosen to stay, which is the amazing thing. Everyone's dispersed. Everyone's fleeing. Believers are choosing to stay and to minister to the people that are there and to share the gospel with the millions of refugees that are pouring through their communities. Christianity Today reports this. They say Ukrainian sources are all clinging to what in this moment? They're clinging to to God, and the significant damage does not deter them. Sergei Rabuka, who serves as the president of Mission Eurasia, he adds this. He says the most important task for the church right now is simply to continue what? To continue preaching because churches have become, and I hope this is, becomes true of, of Aspen Grove here in this city, they are lighthouses of what? Of hope. One Ukrainian pastor says this, despite all of our pain, and despite all of our suffering, we pray and we work with hope and faith that God will prevail and reveal his glory in Ukraine. Why? Because as we already know, the fire of adversity has never stopped the people of God over the last 2,000 years, has it? Who are fully committed to Jesus Christ. In fact, as some have said, the blood of the martyrs is simply the, the fuel of the church, right? 
In fact, on the contrary, tells, history tells us that the, the fire of, of the, that comes at us from the culture sometimes just increases the impact of the church as Jesus starts to shine brightly through us even more. A man named Bill Self, who works as the head of the men's basketball coach at University of Kansas, puts it well. He said recently to a group of church leaders this. He says, somehow we have to make disciples instead of, and I love this, instead of inspiration junkies. Which means that a church that chooses to equip to follow, uh, chooses to equip their members to actually follow Jesus will actually last a whole lot longer than a church that simply makes people want to feel better about their day, right? It's better to be a follower than just a feeler. In fact, speaking of one who builds a church, look with me at verse 14. Paul goes on to write this. He says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation does what? If it survives, then he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There's a man by the name of Leroy Imes, and uh, he, he wrote a classic work on what it means to make disciples. And he tells about a, a, mission, a missionary that he visited on the field, um, this veteran missionary, and his experience of what it meant to make disciples. And Leroy Imes writes this. This is kind of an extended quote. Just follow along with me on the displays. Imes says, he told me a story that still haunts me, and I can't get it out of my mind. He'd gone overseas some 15 years before we met, and he began the usual programs. About that time he arrived on the field, he met a young man named Johnny who was involved in something quite different. Johnny was a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, but he was going about his ministry in all the wrong ways according to the book. In contrast to the typical missionary approach, Johnny was spending the bulk of his time meeting with a few young men in that country. The veteran missionary tried to get Johnny straightened out, but the young man kept on with his different approach. Years passed, and the veteran missionary now had to leave the country of his service due to new visa restrictions. And as he sat across the coffee table for me in his home, he told me, Leroy, I've got little to show for my time here. Oh, there's a group of people who meet in our assembly. But I wonder what will happen to them when I leave. Because they're not disciples. They've been faithful in listening to my sermons but they do not witness. Few of them know how to lead another person to Christ. They know nothing about discipling others. And now that I'm leaving, I can see I've all but wasted my time. But then this seasoned missionary says this. He says, then I looked at what has come out of Johnny's life. One of the men he worked with is now a professor at the university. This man is mightily used of God to reach and train scores of university students. Another is leading and witnessing and discipling a team of about 40 young men and women. Another is in a nearby city with a group of 35 growing disciples around him. Three have gone to other countries as missionaries and are now leading teams who are multiplying disciples. And God is blessing their work. And I see the contrast, he says, between my life and Johnny's. And he says, and it's tragic. He says, I was so sure I was right and that what he was doing seemed so insignificant. But now I look at the results and they are what? They are staggering. You know what he's really saying? He's saying that as a church, we will never get lasting results by filling pews. 
We'll never get lasting results by filling chairs. We get lasting results by making disciples. And so if you want to help Aspen Grove to build a church that lasts, then first and foremost, we need to begin with the right what? Foundation. Number two, we need to build a quality structure upon that foundation, which is fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, not just butts and seats but believers who are working for the gospel. And then third and finally, as we'll see next down in verse 16, we need as mission-minded believers to bulwark this church's unity. Not just build on the right foundation, not just um, erect and build a quality structure, but to bulwark this church's unity, which means that we need to protect this church from all the destructive forces that are out there. And it's not the culture, it's things like dissension and division How many of you have ever been, you don't have to raise your hand, but you've been a part of a place, a ministry, a church where there's been dissension and division. You're like, good night, (laughs) goodbye. This is the worst. We need to guard against those kind of destructive forces which actually vandalize and damage the body of Christ. Look at verse 16. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's what? You are God's temple. Now let's try it like we mean it, okay? They got to hear you on the live stream. You are God's There it is. We got it. And that God's spirit actually dwells in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, Bible doesn't have anything good to say about that because God destroys him for God's temple is holy. And then there's this amazing verse there where it says, and guess what? You are that temple. If you know anything about the book of first Corinthians, you know that the context of this chapter is that this church in the first century is literally at each other's throats, right? They're suing each other. They're shouting at each other. There's all these cliques. They're battling interpersonally and interrelationally amongst one another, which means that Paul says they were in danger of destroying the temple of the living God, which is what they truly were. And so Paul's kind of shouting from the page, and he's saying, men, women, young people, be careful. Be careful to keep dissension as far away from the church of Jesus Christ as you possibly can. Maintain your church with unity and love because if you don't, your mic will keep falling off your head. No, he says disaster and destruction and hurt feelings and bruised relationships and fractured ministries and split churches. They're just around the corner if you don't bulwark it. Verse 18, so let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is what in this age? Thinks he is wise. Let him become a fool that he might become wise. And I love this verse. For the, let's read this together. He says, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Some translations will say the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. For it is written, he, the Lord, catches the wise in their craftiness. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. I really like the way that the biblical commentator Warren Wiersbe puts it when he says this. He says, you cannot manage a local church the same way you run a business. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow, he says, good business principles, but the operation is totally different. There is a wisdom of this world that works for the world, but it will not, he says, work for the church. The world depends on things like promotion, he says, and prestige and the influence of money and important people. But you know what the church depends on, Wiersbe writes? He says the church depends on prayer. 
and the power of the Holy Spirit and humility and sacrifice and surface service. And the church that imitates the world may seem to succeed in time, but it will soon turn to ashes in eternity. Wearsby saying, hey, if you want to manage this church the right way, if you want to manage this church God's way and not our way, we must seek his will. And we must seek his ways. And we have to seek his direction from his word in prayer as we depend on his Holy Spirit. Because it's not about us, right? It's all about him. And the Bible is going to tell us here that when we do church God's way, all of a sudden we as the people of God, we start to shine. But as soon as we start doing it our way, Paul says you start vandalizing the church. When we do it God's way, we shine brightly. When we do it our way, we we vandalize the church. We tarnish it, no matter how much we dress ourselves up with with selfish motives. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 21. Paul says it this way. He says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future are all yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Everybody hold up your Bible real quick. The reality is that when you get to the end of that book, when you get to the end of your Bible, guess who wins in the end? Jesus wins, right? What, what lasts besides Jesus and his church? Nothing. Where's the Hittite empire? It's gone. Where's the Assyrian empire from the Old Testament? It's passed away. Where's the Roman empire? Which there's a whole like, you know, social media trend where people are asking, how often do you think about the Roman empire? Well, right now, I helped you out. Um, I, what happened to the Roman empire? It's what? It's gone. What'll happen to the United States one day? It'll be gone. But the kingdom of our God will go on forever and ever and ever. In the end, Jesus wins. And if you're in Jesus, guess who wins too? We do. And so what Paul is really saying here is that in the local church, you may have a personal preference when it comes to a particular Christian leader, but the apostle Paul writes that whatever you do, do not permit your personal preferences to become a divisive prejudice. Because all too often, the Christian leader that you may actually enjoy the least may very well be the one that you need the most. Have you ever noticed that in life? The person who spoke into your life that you're like, I didn't need you to say that. And then a decade later, you're like, oh, I'm really glad you said that. <laughs> There's a retired pro basketball player named A.C. Green. Anybody basketball fans? A.C. Green? Okay, three of us, we know. That's cool. They're all in the back. We're over here. We'll hang out afterwards. Um, retired pro basketball player um, A.C. Green talks about the glory years that he experienced when he was in high school. And he says this, he says, at Benson High School in Portland, Oregon, we got up there, yeah, here we go. Our tech guy's great. Can you cheer the tech on right now? I mean, you're crushing it. At Benson High School in Portland, Oregon, nobody cheered you, but I love you. He says, I was a sports-minded, egotistical, what? Maniac. See, he was the tallest guy on the team. He could have broken every scoring record if he wanted to, but the coach wouldn't let him. True story. Coach wouldn't let him do it. Even when he's pumping the brakes, twice a year he scored 39 points when he was holding back during the games. In the season finale against Wilson, he scored 40 points. He averaged only 27 points a game, but as a team, they scored about 100 points 
uh, over the course of seven games, they averaged about 90 points per game. 1981, he's voted as the All-Metro Area Player of the Year. He joins the All-Metro team, and here's what he says, and I love this. He says, Coach Gray wouldn't allow me to be a what? To be a hot shot. He wouldn't allow me to do it because he was more interested in the final stat, number one. He knew the only way that we could reach that championship level was for us to become team players. And then he ends by saying this, in basketball and in life, everyone starts out with a what's in it for me attitude. We do, right? If we're just being honest, you don't have to raise your hand. It's just true. We're in it for us at the beginning. What's the first thing you think about when you wake up? Us, <laughs> right? Children, he says, are selfish. Sorry, Calvin. Uh, that's my son. Children are selfish. The natural selfishness has to be broken to be a winner. You have to realize that you can't do it all by yourself. Read this next part with me. You need the team. What do we need? He says, you need the team. Coach Gray made me pass the ball and play unselfishly, regardless of individual stats. We, the team, reached the top. And we, the team, went all the way. In this church, as we ordain Howard and Daryl to be pastors this morning, this is a big day. Anybody excited for that? Okay, we got, we got one, woo, what we got over here? I love it. Okay, we're just waking up now. Okay, so when we do that, the reality is that it is not a solo sport for Howard and Daryl as pastors and co-pastors of this place to do all the ministry. In fact, the Bible is actually gonna say in Ephesians chapter four that their job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Guess who the saints are? So really, in a moment, they're going to pull back from ministry and then equip and empower all of you to actually do the work of ministry. Because in the church of Jesus Christ, everyone on the team has a role to play. And so when you elevate one person over another, you know what ends up happening, unfortunately? The team starts to lose. And so if we, as the people of God, want to build a church at Aspen Grove that actually perseveres, that lasts that is vibrant, that has an impact that echoes on down through eternity. Number one, we need to begin with the right foundation. Now, this is the end of my message, so we're going to have to get loud right now. We need to, number two, we're going to build a quality structure. And then number three, and finally, we need to bulwark the church's unity with godly wisdom and teamwork, joining with the hymn writer, William Pearson Merrill, and crying out these words. And um, I'm going to have you do this. I'm going to have you stand as we hear these words. We're going to say it together. And I just want you to put a hand on somebody next to you. This is going to be just a charge for each other as members of Aspen Grove. Um, whether this is your first Sunday here or you've been coming here since the very beginning, um, this is our charge for each other. And so let's just read it together. Ready? With as much zeal and fervor as we can. Can everybody see it up there? Short people in the back, you can still? Okay. It says, rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of kings. Rise up, O sons of God. The church for you doth wait. Her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. Lift high the cross of Christ. Tread where his feet have trod. As followers of the Son of Man, rise up, O church of God. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated.